0: Hey, your old comrade Zaza from Eurotrash here. So happy that you're here. Okay, listen, here's the thing. Um, I have to preface this interview with the amazing Dr. Peter Strzok by saying that we did face a tiny bit of technical difficulties, which is why the whole thing now sounds like it's been recorded through the phone. Having said that, this was definitely one of my favorite conversations so far, hands down, uh, as Dr. Struck's wisdom and, and his sense of humor really shined through. So if you happen to be into Greek and Roman mythology, this is an absolute must-listen nevertheless. Just wanted to let you know. Thanks! <laughs> Dr. Peter Strzok is Professor and Chair of the Department of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. He received his A.B. at the University of Michigan and his M.A. and Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. His primary research interests are in the history of ideas about the construction of meaning with specialties in myth, literary criticism and divination. His book, Birth of the Symbol, Ancient Readers and the Limits of Their Texts, won the C.J. Goodwin Award from the American Philological Association for Best Book in Classical Studies. His most recent book is Divination and Human Nature, a Cognitive History of Intuition in Antiquity, for which he also won the Goodwin Award. He is currently writing a popular book on mythology for Princeton University Press. Dr. Strzok, welcome to Eurotrash.
1: Thanks very much. Nice to be here.
0: This conversation is already quite special as well as somewhat surreal to me for a little bit of context. Uh, You were my professor for a while, yet this is the very first time we're meeting or talking to each other, which to our listeners must feel like the riddle of the Sphinx. Uh, which in part is actually a perfect introduction into what we're going to be discussing today. But to release the suspense, you're teaching an extremely popular Greek and Roman mythology course at Coursera, which I graduated from exactly 10 years ago. Uh, Cum laude, if I may blow my own trumpet a little bit, just to show you that I was quite serious about it. Uh, But yeah, the course is not only super interesting and really, really cool. It's also completely free. So, I'm urging anyone who's the least bit interested in mythology to enroll immediately. I think I just checked and I think the course started August 22nd.
1: Thanks, Zazel. I appreciate the plug.
0: Okay, now I'm finally going to stop talking and start asking because Greek mythology really had a huge formative influence on my imagination and my love for stories and is really close to my heart. Um, let's start with something a bit more personal. Out of all the Greek myths, which one is your favorite and why?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a tricky one. Um, it's either the Odyssey or the Iliad. And it sort of changes depending on what I've read most recently. But I'd say probably books 9 through 12 of the Odyssey.
0: Can you refresh our memories a little bit? What is book 9 through 12?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, the Odyssey is a very long story with uh, lots of different pieces to it. And the most sort of splashy and exciting things happen in books 9 through 12. Um, So that's where we get the stories of the sirens and the lotus eaters um, and Circe and the Cyclops and and Charybdis. Uh, All of them are put into those books. Uh, This is a section of the epic in which Odysseus sort of takes over the storytelling. Um, He's been washed up on shore in a faraway island. It's very exotic and strange, and people are a little different um, from what he's used to seeing. Um, But uh, he spends some time telling them what he's just done. So he takes over the epic, and in those four books, he he goes through all the adventures that he had. All so oh, right, wonderful.
0: so all of the action-packed bits yeah. are in, in those books. Yeah,
1: and when I'm teaching with my students, the, uh, that there's sort of an expectation that the whole of the epic is like that, because those are the bits that people run into when they hear about the Odyssey and Odysseus. Um, but there's actually a, a pretty um, deliberately unfolding of books one through eight, uh, where not all that much exciting happens, but things do happen. And then from books 13 and forward, he's just sort of at home talking to people. He winds up on the island of Ithaca halfway through the book. And he's only really halfway home at that point because he's got to negotiate all those final challenges uh, to get from uh, being a washed up uh, beggar on the, uh, on the shores of his island, Ithaca, to getting himself uh, into his household and eventually into his inner rooms, eventually into his inner chambers, eventually into his bedroom, eventually back into his uh, marital bed with Penelope. And each of those is a, a great challenge to, to work his way through. But it's not, it doesn't have all the sort of swashbuckling adventure, that half of the epic as it shows up in the last third of the first half.
0: So... Everything that we remember from the Odyssey is actually happening in those books. So, um, like all the, the the action stuff. But what happens books one through eight? Is it also just talking?
1: Well, yeah, one through eight. One through eight, I find fascinating, but uh, it takes a little little while to see their charms. Um, one through four, we have a really close up uh, a story about uh, Calypso trying to figure out what he's going to be doing. He's stuck in a household that's been overrun by older, more powerful men. Um, he tends toward being whiny in that kind of a situation. Um, we, I think, contemporary readers are, are ready to uh, extend their sympathy to him, which is perfectly fine, um, but they do lots of explanations while he's without the father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're sort of used to psychologizing these things and the particular challenges that people face in their lives because of deficits that they faced. We're used to that kind of a process. Homer doesn't seem to spend any energy being overly worried about Telemachus. He kind of thinks Telemachus ought to shape up and grow up and it's time to, to move forward. Um, after all, I mean, a, Achilles is roughly his age, a little older, um, but Achilles has been off conquering continents uh, for uh, the full decade before, and Telemachus can't quite figure out his putting one foot in front of the other. So there's a challenge there that he needs to face. Um, and part of that book's one report is an education. Uh, he gets taken around to the great men of his father's generation, and they say to him all well, the time, because what?" Well, something funny is happening in your house. What's wrong? How come you're not taking some action? Um, he's reminded at each turn during that trip that he should have been angry and not just frightened or frustrated. He should have been angry about this. And he's being sort of educated on that. Um, and then in five through eight, we meet uh, Odysseus finally. Um, and we find him mostly on this island uh, in this faraway place, uh, with the Fasians, uh, the island of Scaria. And he gets himself settled in there and kind of puts himself back together uh, under their shelter, um, and then at the end of eight, tells himself, uh, reveals himself to be Odysseus. Uh, beginning of nine, um, and from there he takes over the narrative and tells his hosts what he's been up to.
0: If we go back to the origins, yes, we have the oral tradition in ancient Greece before. But if we say that everything really begins with the big daddy Homer that you've mentioned already the disputed author of the Odyssey and the Iliad, are we missing anything crucial?
1: Well, sure. I mean, you know, in a, in a, in a world of full knowledge, there would be a whole bunch of stuff that we would know. Um, but in terms of what's documented and the evidence we have access to, um, Homer's a good starting place for Greek myth. Uh, he is the first preserved extended narrative. Um, he feed it as nearby him in time, so he's close by, uh, not someone that uh, is as well known, although Hesiod's stories are very well known. So he's got the the encoding of the rise of Zeus and this great struggle between uh, the Olympians and the Titans uh, is the story that that Hesiod tells in addition to some others. Um, So yeah, those are the early parts and the beginning pieces, um, and we don't have evidence for what happened before that. There surely was, uh, of this we can be confident, a rich and complex cultural tradition prior to Homer, um, which to some extent leads up to and feeds into Homer, to some extent starts tributaries that go nowhere else uh, and, and could have if there had been someone who took up the, the, the tradition and, and moved it in the direction that those prior traditions did. Um, so we can be confident that the. There were lots of stories being told, um, and the one that we happen to have, thank goodness we have one, uh, is the one that Homer encodes. Um, And then in later traditions, um, as the tradition grows and expands from there, the fact that Homer was written down um, and was really the first extended narrative in the Greek material that's written down, uh, that anchors his place as a sort of go-to touchstone uh, for later retellers of these mythic stories.
0: Is there any sort of consensus now if he wrote both the Odyssey and the Iliad among scholars or there's there actually isn't? Um, is there a, a consensus whether he lived at all? Uh, could you yeah. alleviate any of those burdens for us?
1: Well, no, I can't really. Um, I, I think that the question has not been sort of... Necessarily thoroughly answered. It's just people sort of got tired of it. Um, so yes, there there are there's a kind of habit of scholarship that grows out of uh, early uh, biblical uh, interpret uh, biblical analysis um, that emerges in the uh, in the 19th century, um, in which scholars coming from traditions of philology uh, in which classical studies is deeply embedded, um, turn their attention to the unfolding, particularly the first five books um, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, And they look inside of there and start to notice that actually we can identify uh, various narrative strains and five main ones show up and people propose other ones and they had great success. And there was solid consensus that sort of quickly converged on saying, yes, we have these five distinct narrative voices plus probably some others uh, that are the basis uh, for, the, for the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and that's illuminating, it's interesting. So what we thought of maybe as a unified voice depending on people's faith commitments actually is boils down into five different human beings in different contexts with different uh, concerns and interests. Um, The success of that, I think, got people excited, got scholars excited, and they turned that same approach toward Homer, and thought they might be able to start finding different strands in Homer, and some proposed that there were four strands in Homer, and some proposed that there were 20 strands, and some proposed that there were 40 strands, and then eventually it just sort of, oh, well, who knows how many strands there were. Um, And I think that probably now scholarly consensus is roughly at the point that um, yeah, we have these wonderful long narrative stories that show a strong editorial voice that may as well be a singular voice uh, that may might, might well have been the same singular narrative voice that shaped the final version of what we now have written down as the Odyssey and the final version of what we now have written down as the Iliad. Um, so, you know, that, that's probably about where the the question stands and if that sounds a little too mushy for our folks I mean you know our our urge uh, to identify an author as a singular human being is to some extent a modern one uh, authorship and solitary genius and these kind of things are, are very uh, you know last few hundred years uh, those are ideas that we've attached ourselves to um, prior to that the, the the status of the of, of the production of these um, uh, large central narrative texts. Yeah, we, we invented the figure of Homer to start talking about them, or at least we we inherited and, and centered the figure of Homer. But there's not as much uh, fetishizing of a kind of copyright authorship uh, 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 question in antiquity. Um, it's just we have this wonderful rich tradition. And yeah, it's Homer that did it, um, according to... kind of way they settled these questions back then so i don't think that we um uh absolutely have to discover the final end to this question in order to be um uh fully uh able to engage in the text in their full way the ancients themselves weren't about the same position we were um in this
0: do we have any idea about how a story becomes a myth Um, there's probably a lot of skillful storytellers in ancient Greece but not every epic makes it into the collective consciousness that way I'm guessing it takes more than just a compelling narrative to make the cut, it probably has to go a bit deeper
1: well I think so, and that's actually a really wonderful and uh, ongoing question in the scholarship Um, and you know one thing I just kind of maybe start with some terminology how one way to ask your question, I think, in the way that you did, is is how do we uh, how does a story go from being a story to being a myth? Another way of asking the question would be how do we decide uh, when a story gets a label of myth? Um, and the label of myth is actually a, a contemporary one; um, it's in the last 250 years or so that that term showed, started to show up in European languages, um, and it had it, it has a uh, Greek antecedent, it's, it's a perfectly uh, long, lazy, determined self, muthos, uh, reaches all the way back into ancient Greek. But in ancient Greek material, it meant uh, various things. In Homer, um, a muthos is basically anything that comes out of someone's mouth. So language, uh, articulated, uh, a story or, uh, a ne- or, or um, information that comes from someone, uh, their accounts, their, their version of events, their what, whatever. and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with larger, broader cultural stuff. Um, later, it c- starts to come, particularly in the philosophers, to mean um, a story as opposed to the truth. And that's an interesting thing. So it, it, in Greek, it has a very long tradition of being a lie, uh, something made up fully fanciful as opposed to actual fact um, and then later on uh, in the centuries of the hellenistic period, to so the early centuries before the common era and afterwards um, there's a group of folks that are reinterpreting this ancient material and they do call what they're looking at mushoi and w- and they're looking at the same kind of stuff we're looking at uh, when they're looking at these at these myths so for them it has in later greek history it has a kind of alignment with, with what that material is um, so you know there, there's the uh, a question that we can ask is why do we call now we've decided uh sorry i'm getting to my point here we've decided to call certain of these things myths and i i'm always I, i'm a little curious as to why we do that's that's of interest to me and what stories uh count as myth um uh, so we have a whole bunch of cultural products um, from uh, deep antiquity, thank goodness. Um, they're precious, and uh, we're, we're, uh, everyone we have helps illuminate our understanding of, of early human life. Um, and we surely know from this that narrative is central in the way people produce culture uh, in deep antiquity all the way back. Um, which of those narratives are myth and which aren't um, uh, is, it would be, you know, th- there would have to be, let's say, say there's no settled formula to decide which ones count as myth and which ones don't. Um, but, and folks have sort of different discussions about yeah. that.
0: If I may, yeah. Um, but then how did ancient Greeks discern between a gossip and a culturally significant
1: story? Right. Um, so, I mean, and, and there we're getting, I think, probably a little closer to the merits of the question, which is good. It, you know, why do certain narratives start to take authoritative cultural positions? Um, I don't have a much more complex answer to that than that they speak to the concerns of that culture. Um, and uh, different uh, mythic uh, shapes uh, emerge in different cultural uh, um, uh, venues. Um, the Greek materials have their way of doing things, they have their concerns that they're centrally interested in um, and author to author those, those concerns vary uh, a little bit but we see some sort of discernible Greek centerpieces um, and we'll see that those are different than the Romans when the Romans start telling myth. Um, they focus in on different kinds of cultural values so I think myth is a sort of centerpiece of uh, organizing um, cultural valuations um, through narrative form Um, And it uh, uh, deals with issues of fundamental concern uh, to the culture, and those issues vary from culture to culture.
0: From your lectures, I remember, it was 10 years ago, so I apologize in advance if I'm going to say something completely ridiculous, but I remember that (laughs) myths weren't just tall tales that take hold, they fulfilled certain functions as well. I remember one of them being a way to process a traumatic event from the past, that myths are kind of mechanisms for something bad that really happened to then get kind of sublimated. That always struck me as super likely and plausible somehow.
1: Yeah, no, I think so. And, you know, here we start to get to some of the various contemporary views on myth. Um, there have been, I mean, if, if you look back at the intellectual history of the 20th century, um, I think you could do a lot worse than imagining it as a long series of ideas on myth. Um, there, there's from, you know, Nietzsche to Freud to Levi-Strauss, Malinowski, um, early anthropology, that myth is a weaves in and out of many of the of the important strands. Uh, of intellectual history in the 20th century. Um, So we have lots of different views that are brought into myths, how they function and how they work. Um, And if we ask someone like uh, Malinowski, Brennazal Malinowski, who dates are 1884 to 1942, what he thought myth was, um, well, he came up with a school that later gets called functionalism, in which he claimed that myths are there um, in order to legitimize uh, social and cultural forms. So for Malinowski, the important thing was a myth was a legitimization machine. Um, so our culture just decides to do things in a certain way. Uh, we eat this plant, but never that plant, or this kind of meat, but never that kind of meat. Uh, well, why is that? Well, the, the myths are going to legitimize whatever cultural form we decide. Uh, or we've got certain ways of organizing relationships or certain ways of, of uh, doing our um, uh, organizing of, of sex and reproduction and sex is okay and not okay and uh, myth is there to make us feel good about the cultural choices we've made um, but then there'll be someone else like Freud for example who will claim that uh, in psychoanalysis in his book on the interpretation of dreams wonderful work on myth in addition to on dreams um, where Freud claims that um, uh, just like dreams are there Um, in order to fulfill the wish of an individual dreamer. So also myths are there in order to fulfill the wish of an individual culture. So myths are like the dreams of an entire culture. And what these myths do, according to Freud, is to allow us um, to indulge in otherwise socially prohibited um, stuff. So we have a whole bunch of civilization that's telling us, nope, can't do that, can't do that. Um, much of it having to do with food and sex um, and basic social behaviors and how we organize our society. Well, according to Freud, myth opens up a space that lets us indulge in all that stuff that's prohibited. Um, and that's its thrill and its excitement, according to him. Um, and there are many other uh, schools of thought that, that push those through, but maybe uh, functionalism and, and psychoanalysis are enough to kind of get us started on those questions.
0: What's the separation between religion? in mythology, then, in in le- legitimizing certain social practices, the line seems quite fine.
1: Well, I think they do overlap, and typically, when when scholars of religion describe religion, there's a, a standard definition of religion as being myth and ritual together. Um, and in that formulation, uh, the myth is the narrative stories, and ritual is the. Uh, physical behaviors uh, that people engage in. Um, I'd also add the difference between myth and, and religion that the, it's not just ritual that's there in religion, but also typically faith commitments of one kind or another. Um, so some theological grounding for uh, uh, a commitment to the, the o- final shape of a noble uh, um, uh, ultimate being or set of beings. In uh, myth, again, this is the category that we've created, and we've created it 250 years ago um and the way it's typically used and i I don't see a reason to to push against this uh, myth doesn't require a faith commitment um it's a story that in that sense would answer to what religion does um so in that sense it'll be it's a narrative um but it's doing what it's doing uh, irrespective of faith commitments to some broader
0: stuff (laughs) <laughs> okay, so this is a distinction that we're making now, but to ancient Greeks that wasn't that clear.
1: No, in fact, it wouldn't have existed.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, there, there's for for them, number one, what I'm calling a faith commitment would be sort of absurd. They're, they're not. They're just they're observing the gods as if they're observing parts of nature. I mean, they're just around um uh, the gods are just there and only a sort of insane person would think that they weren't okay um and yeah and we know that they're there because they they mess with us sometimes um and we try to keep them happy through our rituals that's what the greeks would imagine
0: i mean but how literally did ancient greeks understand these what we call myths today and and the characters in them on one hand like achilles and hector for example seem like they could have very well be based on some real warriors from the past on the other hand you could simply climb On top of mount olympus and see that there are no gods living there (laughs) right Right? like uh, also yeah also like the school of skepticism was kind of born in ancient greece right so
1: sure well one of the earliest comments we have on homer uh from a figure called xenophanes uh a pre-socratic philosopher uh one of the earliest comments we have on homer is probably 6th century BCE, is he saying those gods that humans make up are just made up according to their own anthropomorphic uh, views. And if, um, if, you know, animals made up gods, they make up gods that look like animals. So that we have absolutely well attested, and we don't have any reason to think that it's brand new, that kind of skepticism. It probably was around prior to Xenophanes, or at least it could have been around prior to Xenophanes. And surely by the 5th and 4th centuries before the Common Era, uh, the philosophers are just, you know, Homer does what Homer does, and that's fanciful and made up. And then in the meantime, we philosophers are trying to figure out the way the world really is. Um, So, yeah, there's not a um, uh, sort of... um, slavish uh, uh, embrace, or a a highly policed uh, 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 embrace of the views that Homer had, and one must believe those. Uh, That's just not part of the picture. Um, There is a variety of religious expressions uh, Homer would be included in that because he's talking about our gods. Um, and then there's also the local cults that we engage in. So we have an Apollo, let's say, that's our local divinity, and we do certain rituals for Apollo at certain times. And he likes certain things and doesn't like other things, and you know that from our tradition. Um, and our city's Apollo is probably going to be a little different from the gods down the, down the road that they also call Apollo, but their Apollo does a little bit different things. And then there's Homer's Apollo, the literary Apollo. And all these traditions kind of mush and flow in and out of each other, um, such that there's an Apollo around. Um, And we all, it would just be for them kind of silly not to think that there was an Apollo. Of course there is. Um, What exactly that Apollo is all about? Well, that's that's another question.
0: So if you got a bit boozed, let's say, in ancient Athens, and you were screaming on the streets, there is no Zeus, there is no Apollo, it's all a figment of, uh, of your imagination, you wouldn't get into any sort of trouble would you
1: um no and i'll put one small asterisk there um if you were uh, someone who was already annoying authorities because of the kinds of questions you tended to ask them and i'm thinking here are the figure of socrates then they may well decide uh to say that the kind of views you have about the gods are antithetical to the interests of the city um, that that happened to Socrates uh, in an unforgettable uh, um, and very prominent way. So we can't say that it was uh, these lines were never enforced. But mostly, it just, it, it, we don't have. First of all, we don't have a, any single authoritative text. So it's not as though a person can um, point to X and Y and Z doctrine that now you've um, somehow. Uh, uh, Insulted? That doesn't really happen. We've got traditions, and you may not be following the tradition. Now that that again, that's annoying, and it's annoying to the city. And it's partly because it's an antisocial behavior. Uh, Why wouldn't you have an ice cream at our ice cream social? You know, I mean, come on, we're having an ice cream social. Why don't you have an ice cream? And if if you walk around and say, "Well, I don't believe in ice cream," you know, that that's just okay like why would you bother saying that and you're just you're really being annoying and it's an antisocial, i think gesture that that is the most concerning thing for the civic authorities to keep an eye on and again it's not as though we have long traditions of uh folks doing this in antiquity we've got the famous case of socrates and not a lot else um uh, of people running afoul of the authorities because they their gods look a little different than the, than the traditional gods of the city
0: Speaking of the gods, the Olympians must be one, if not the most dysfunctional family in the history of fiction. (laughs) And I love them for it. But there's just like constant betrayal on the menu. There's revenge, there's lust and vanity and pettiness. I mean, the whole thing basically starts with Zeus.
1: Don't forget incest.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Incest, of course, yes, yes. Of um, course, yeah. W- w- uh, the whole thing starts with Zeus castrating his children devouring father, right? In some versions, at least. Why are Greek it's gods actually, more yeah. human than humans? I mean, seems like such a far <laughs> cry from the monotheistic conceptions of the divine that are so yeah, normal yeah. to us today.
1: Well, um, and just a little footnote, it's Kronos that does the uh, severing of the genitals of Uranos. So uh, it's yes. uh, Zeus's... Yeah, Zeus's... Uh, father uh who's the who's the castrator um i read yes, somewhere so though that these,
0: zeus does the same thing to his father then but maybe that's not there's a, a later that's there's a la- there are later
1: traditions there are later traditions of Orphic material that continue the castration theme uh into okay. later generations so it could be yeah, in the yeah. Orphic material right. showing up but yeah. um yeah the, the 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 gods are just out there and that the, the <laughs> you know the the i just kind of starting from a theological Position it. if a pers- person runs into these um, and asks themselves, how in the world could they have thought that the gods are like that? Isn't that? Wouldn't that be troubling to position your gods like that? Well, that's exactly the kind of criticism, among others, that Plato has of uh, this famous philosopher um, in uh, fourth and. 5th uh, centuries before the common era um, Plato's was reading Homer and he says what are you, do-? you know, portraying the gods this way is just uh to what we think a good society ought to be um, and for him there was a problem that when people read stories like this um, they would uh, give themselves a pass on all the behaviors that the gods do by saying, well, yeah, I could commit incest or castrate my father. Well, look, the gods did it, so it seems like it would be okay for me. (laughs) Um, So, you know, being ready to criticize them for that kind of organization of of their understanding of divinity uh, is a very old theme. Um, And sure, it makes perfect sense. One thing I sort of toss out when I'm teaching the class Um, Sure, let's go ahead and start from a kind of perfect uh, world and imagine a kind of um, very familiar situation, Uh, and I say this in in a a modern context, in which you have a divinity that's all good, all-knowing, and all-powerful. And all that seems like kind of nice, like you'd want your divinities to be nice, that's great. Uh, But then you do have a problem at that point, the problem of evil. Um, and the problem of evil or theodicy, uh, D-I-C-Y, um, theodicy, is a really important and interesting one, um, and it's not been lost on those important and powerful faith commitments for millennia uh, to try to solve this one. But it hasn't been solved uh, to anyone's final satisfaction, uh, partly because of the just prima facie problem here if you've got an all good all knowing all powerful divinity it should know when bad stuff is happening it should want to correct it because it's all good and it surely has the power to do that um and again there'll be pat answers that people trot out to make sure that they can preserve their view of it if you have a view of divinity that's more like the the olympians you don't have that problem (laughs) um yeah the, the world is off and doing its thing and like the gods we're doing our best in a world that's um grinding away toward um whatever uh next step it's grinding toward um and sometimes you get caught up in the gears of that grinding in the world um and when you do you can imagine what role the divinities are playing in it um why did i escape the grinding of the wheels and not someone else, you've got ways of building in an answer to that question um, in a way that I think you're without resources uh, if you think you have a sort of perfect, good God. Um, So uh, I think the explanatory power of having for just basic human experience, the explanatory power for having gods that have rough edges, um, that have passions, that that are distractible, um, that are vengeful, uh, the explanatory power of that is pretty clear And I wouldn't want us to lose, I think if we lose sight of that, then then these gods just become a complete puzzle. Um, And I wouldn't want, I think that that's a, that's a a missed opportunity for understanding.
0: If we break down their divine status a little bit in like comic book terms, let's put it, um, how powerful was, you know, your, your Greek God, usually they weren't omnipresent, right? They were immortal and they had their own superpowers. But yeah. is that basically it, or is there anything yeah. else that I left out? No,
1: that's basically it. I mean, the key thing is that they don't die.
0: Yeah.
1: That's the key thing. And that's huge. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the hugeness of that is uh, mappable onto um, the great tragedy of being a living thing. Uh, in addition to being the great marvel of being a living thing, is that you emerge and you exist. And you have know, consciousness, and these things are all extraordinary. Um, the sad, sad, sad price for that is that all of us eventually face a terminus to that state. Um, the idea that the gods don't face a terminus to that state uh, is a, a marker for how. Central that is in our understanding of ourselves as creatures, what we're like, what we are. Um, because if you didn't have that, you'd be a completely different thing. Um, and that's what these gods kind of start with. Now, they're also extremely powerful. So they're, I think, probably one of the best ways of thinking about them is that they're like us, only a lot more, and they don't die. So they're a lot more than us in the sense that they know a lot more, and they have much more, and they're much bigger, and they have much more power. But their power is not 100%. And their knowledge is never 100%. Uh, their deathlessness is 100%, with uh, small little asterisks in the tradition that make these weird, strange hints that it's possible that their condition of immortality could roll up at some point too. But mostly it's, it's not an issue. They, they, by definition, don't die, and that's huge. And then yeah, they have superpowers, and those purviews they divide up among themselves. I mean, another short answer, and this might sound glib, but what can a god do? A god can do whatever Zeus lets that god get away with. Mm. Uh, because, I mean, they're embedded. In, yeah. They're embedded in a social hierarchy. and this okay. is the boss.
0: So he's also the most powerful. Clearly,
1: yes. Now he, like any leader, um, is burdened uh, by uh, the, his his subordinates. Um, they need to be kept okay with things. They need to be uh, respected. They need to. Otherwise, his job much more of a hassle because they're. Uh, Barking at him all the time, and Zeus, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? So, in that sort of family way, he's the pater Familias who is um, uh, burdened uh, by his responsibilities. He loves his people, yeah, um, more, some more than others, and sometimes more than others. Um, and never is he uh, love them so much that his threat to inflict horrible pain upon them is not taken seriously. Uh, it's always taken seriously. This is uh, rules by violence. Um, that's explicit, and if you want to risk, you know, uh, horrible suffering as a divinity, then you might just sort of willy-nilly decide to cross news. but that's always in your mind that he might inflict horrible suffering on you. So, though you can't die, you can definitely suffer, and you'd rather not suffer if you're a god.
0: A god and a mortal have a child, and mm-hmm. we have a demigod, right, like Hercules. And yep. they usually they're mortal. They be, just because they're part human, they're always mortal, right? But they inherit right. a superpower. Is that how it works? Is yeah. that the basic method? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and they have divine blood in them. Typically, what they inherit is a kind of overall um, uh, oomph in their powers. Um, they don't flirt with immortality. Uh, um, Hercules is a, uh, or Heracles in the Greek is a is a is a um, an exception. Uh, so mostly they don't flirt with. Immortality, but they do have extra power. But they don't get powers, um, typically, that are uh, grow out of the particular domain in which the divinity has power. Um, now, there are some special affiliations. So you could have someone like a, a prophet or something who has this kind of special connection to Apollo. And just as Apollo is a seer, well, so also, you know, uh, Apollo's minions on Earth uh, are seers. Um, including Tyreus, the most famous one. Um, So there are certain people that have connections with divinities, but they're typically not thought to be derived from having been born of the divinity. Those that are born of the divinity um, have this sort of quasi-immortality in the sense that they're powerful.
0: When the Romans take over the show, um, you said that there's different angles that they use, but there's pretty much a rebranding that happens right yep. like Zeus becomes Jupiter Aries becomes Mars and so forth we also get the Aenid where Romans trace yep. their ancestry back to Troy I think Virgil wrote that right uh Indeed. but how come the Romans as proud as they were just kind of immediately acknowledge the supremacy of Greek mythology uh, instead of trying to come up with like brand new stuff of their own
1: yeah um well the the uh yeah. Romans give us a good example of something that's happening all around the Mediterranean. There's a shared pool of common stories. And the Romans had access to that shared pool of common stories in a slightly different but parallel way to the way the Greeks had, prior to them, had shared access to that common pool of material. Um, so to say that the Romans, you know, sort of pull only Greek material and put new names on it, not quite right. The they're pro- they're, better way of thinking about it is that they're both drawing from the same common pool of Mediterranean material um, that reaches into the ancient Near East as well. Um, so we've got uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh shows us the very early traditions uh, in Mesopotamia um, and Babylonia that, that bring out Uh, themes that we see also showing up in other Mediterranean literatures, um, including in the Hebrew Bible, including in the Greek material, including the Roman material. So uh, this leads us to kind of propose this kind of broad common pool of stuff. Um, The Romans prior to knowing a whole bunch of Greek material were doing that same kind of thing. Um, They had divinities whose purviews aligned and sometimes didn't align with the Greek material. So it would be perfectly reasonable, I think, for them to say, well, our God, we, we have a God of War called, uh, uh, we have this Aries um, that where it lines up with the um, the Greek gods. Let's do um, uh, Zeus and Jupiter. That's easier. We've got a, a, a Sky Father, King of the Gods type. Um, we call ours Jupiter. What do you call the Sky Father, King of the Gods type? And they would say, "We'll call him Zeus." And we'd say, "Okay, fine." Um, so that must be. With some similar sort of underlying uh, divinity that we, you have your name for it, we have our name for it, just like you have a different word for water, you know, than we do uh, in Greek and Latin. Um, So that process is happening and it's very dynamic and it's back and forth and it's a conversation between the traditions. So I think imagining what the Romans do as being starting from that standpoint is important. Then Homer, Virgil comes along and specifically rewrites Homer. And he invites us to, to think that he's doing that in the very first line of his poem. Um, so he makes a definitive, I think, uh, link and also separation with the Homeric material to say, I'm gonna retell very Greek materials, Greek versions of this common resourced uh, Mediterranean stuff. And the versions that I'm going to tell now are going to be distinctively Roman. Um, the, the sort of looking at the basic pieces of how the story unfolds, a person thinks, well, there's a Sturgeon war, there's a voyage, a person faces difficulties, gets back to what's going to be their home, fights a war with people, gets, seems like it's an Iliad and an Odyssey, um, kind of, you know, with, with the names changed. Uh, you know dig a little further into it and and actually the ways in which homer is different from uh the ways in which virgil is different from homer um are profound and really important um and in in, uh, a kind of first example of that we have a well-documented example um, of a tradition that's ongoing where a lot of stuff from the past is retold in a contemporary uh, way um, and given new names and given new faces. And that's healthy. That means it's a mythic tradition that's alive. So I think that's what that's what Virgil's up to. Um, and we could talk a little bit about specifics of, of how he goes about it and what things show up. But uh, let, I'll let you ask the question.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I'm just wondering, weren't the Greeks at least a little bit like, come on, lads, you, you're nicking our stuff. Come on, your Homer <laughs> was like a thousand years ago. You're trying to do this epilogue of the Iliad. You know, we, um, we know who's culturally like, you know, who invented <laughs> all of this stuff. Come on. Wasn't Greek culture kind of in esteem in ancient Rome? All of the big families had Greek tutors and and stuff like that. Or am I completely yeah. misrepresenting things?
1: No, no, that is absolutely true. Um, Greek culture has a place in the roman imagination that i think uh, with many differences but let's start with just a, a parallel greek culture has a place in the roman imagination in a way somewhat analogous to what americans think about british people um and there's plenty of, of my brethren in america that will sort of you know pat non-americans on the head and say oh that's so nice because we're a superpower and you're not um and <laughs> we're of course the greatest and and you know felt not We'll be kind and gentle. We're so powerful. And and just don't mess with us or else we'll crush you. Um, So, I mean, there's that that kind of. But uh, when you get to sort of say classy things in America, cultural products that are supposed to be at the high end of the cultural stuff, British accents are widely overrepresented. Um, In the Spears and Sandals movies that come out of Hollywood nearly all the time, ancient Greeks and Romans speak with British accents. (laughs) <laughs> Which is absolutely bizarre. Um, but that's, uh, that, I think, is another artifact of this idea that there's some sort of extra cultural authority that British people have that Americans lack. Um, I'm speaking obviously in very broad brush right. here, and this is just almost, almost like silly hour, but it nevertheless, I think captures something that's at least recognizable. You can't turn on our like national public radio without hearing British accents in America. I mean, I think that's just what we do. Uh, go to the symphony, go to the opera, you know what I'm talking about. Um, similarly, in the Roman material, they would pat the Greeks on the head and say, oh yeah, you used to be great, and now we'll crush you. Um, but at the same time, this sort of Greek culture had this extra stuff. And it was um, it had authority, um, and it gave a person a certain sort of cultural cachet uh, to be able to access that. And the manifestation of Greek tutors is is really an important uh, example of this. Um, there's also a wonderful line from uh, the poet Horace, who says um, the Romans, after they conquered Greece, were conquered by the uh, by Greek culture. So um, it's it's it has this. Um, uh, um, long, ongoing, deep uh, uh, um, uh, theme, particularly among among the Romans, uh, that yes, those Greeks, we stand above them, but at the same time, the cultural stuff they produce is something that we have to kind of pay attention to, sadly. Um, uh, Virgil, in a way, wants to provide, and to some extent, is successful in providing a definitive answer to that question. Um, There is some Greekness to what we do, but we're the Trojans, not the Greeks. That's the ancient tradition we're linked to. And that's fanciful. Um, It's not made up by Virgil, but uh, several centuries prior to Virgil, Romans started to think of themselves as having Trojan legacies. But again, it's just made up. Uh, We don't have any particular reason to think that that's True. Um, and that gives them a, a toehold in that Greek world. The, the kind of core uh, um, piece of the Greek world was Greeks against Trojans, but puts them on the other side of the Greeks. So they have their own independence. Um, plus, also, the values that they um, exonerate or the values that they embrace um, and the crimes that they exonerate are different than what the Greeks did with their men. Um, so, and, and that's always an interesting thing to study in the comparative project between Greek mythology. And so Greek mythology. What's,
0: what are some of the things that jump at you immediately when you compare these yeah, myths, um, like Greek, uh, Greek and uh, Roman ones?
1: Low-hanging fruit, um, you start to look at the, uh, uh, Odysseus as the centerpiece of the Odyssey uh, versus Aeneas as the centerpiece of Virgil's Aeneid. Um, Odysseus is venerated for being resourceful. He can always get out of trouble. So if something comes his way, he will figure out a way to get through it, get past it, and and get beyond and move into the next step. Um, Virgil takes Odysseus to task for being so resourceful. The problem is, if you can always get out of trouble, fine, but why did you get into trouble in the first place? So it just shows um, shoddy planning, insufficient commitment to the collective good of everybody, um, and a, a great hero resourcefulness, fine, you can be resourceful, but that's not the centerpiece for the Romans. Uh, the centerpiece is something that in uh, Latin is called Pietas. And we have an a English cognate to that of piety, and that works okay, but it only captures part of the Greek, of the Roman term. The Roman term really talks about duty um, and honor. And it's your, your um, fealty to broader collective values of the group as a whole. And irrespective of what's good for you as an individual, you will always carry forward with the broader, the good of the broader collective. Um, so that's what Virgil wants to say is the centerpiece of of, of a great hero, and it's very Roman. Um, it's, you can find some analogous stuff in the Greek material, but it's not the centerpiece. Um, Odysseus's centerpiece is definitely his resourcefulness, so always being able to get out of trouble. Um, so, you know, you, you see these differences in nuance, and the, the ways in which these are coded in the Aeneid are just really fun to watch. Um, the, uh, the, when we start to learn about different figures as they kind of show up, Aeneas is taking paths that sometimes intersect with paths that Odysseus took. And Aeneas will run into folks that have been, um, you know, treated poorly by Odysseus and left behind. And and he said, what happened to you? Well, I was with this guy Odysseus, a Greek hero, and I'm a Greek myself, but he just left him behind on this island because he was off being resourceful. Um, and It's a a way that Virgil makes a sharp point of saying that, you know, no, we Romans are different. Um, And, you, you know, I think well, the Romans make the most sense to me as the first in a long line of well doc- first well documented uh, version in a long line of folks that keep reusing this Greek material um, in a way that speaks to their own cultures and they do a lot of changes they uh, folks over time will change the tradition and that's again healthy I, I i worry sometimes that folks spend a little bit too much time particularly those who are really enthusiastic for the material spend a little too much time wagging their fingers at the uh contemporary versions or the roman versions or, or the uh 18th century ones for that for that matter um and say, oh look they changed this and you know all of a sudden if a, uh uh um, aeneas is a frenchman that's so weird why would a person think that and and you know it yeah, well, okay, but the, this kind of thing is just the way we, we do. We, you know, the tradition is alive, it's changing, um, so that, and that's still happening today.
0: That's a perfect segue to my next question. Um, one of the best things about this podcast, it's not just the amazing knowledge that you, the guests, impart, it also, it's also the discoveries that come when I'm preparing for these interviews. So I'm originally from Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia, a small country in southeastern Europe, And Ljubljana's symbol, which is literally everywhere, has always been a dragon. We have it on license plates, sports clubs, jerseys, city flags. We even have the dragon bridge in the center of the city. Following a hunch, I finally did a little bit of research on the origin story and found out that in the swampy areas of the city, there used to live a huge dragon, supposedly. And who suddenly comes along if not Jason and the Argonauts? And in order to proceed along their journey, they have to disassemble the boat and carry it on foot for a bit. But before they they can do that, Jason kills the dragon, obviously, and establishes the city that then becomes Emona, the ancient Roman city, and then Ljubljana. Um, We even have a date when that supposedly happened, which is 1223 BC. Uh, The story was invented, though, uh, during the Baroque era. But I guess I'm trying to ask... Why do we all want to be part of this mythology so, so bad? What's the enduring appeal that's been carrying over for over 2,500 years?
1: Well, that's a, a great question. Um, I suppose that, uh, you know, what answer I would give here, I couldn't say that I, I'm comfortable claiming it would be some definitive answer, but I can give you some impressions. Please. Um, first of all, first of all, I think those stories are just great. These are great stories. They're yeah. so interesting and fun. Um, and uh, stories that we have from deep antiquity, from our human group, um, they're just compelling. They're, 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 in some ways they'll speak to us, in other ways they're different than what we're seeing, um, but they're, they're great stories. So um, you've got that, um, <clears throat> that sort of compelling um, uh, surface that, yeah, this is just a really interesting thing to hear. Then uh, there is, of course, a whole fundament of cultural stuff that's built up around those stories. That was built up prior to us, but after the stories were first told, if we ever would know when they were first told, we're not going to know that. Um, and the retellings uh, over time, over centuries, um, build a kind of um, underlayment for lots of cultural stuff. So when we rehear that story told in a new way, we're linking into a whole bunch of stuff that appears to us to be um, central to our own selves. Um, and this, our own, uh, is uh, really interesting area of contest at this point. Who's the group that's telling the mythology and for what purpose? Um, that's a, a, a part of the story that was occluded for a long time because it was thought that, well, these myths speak for all of humanity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, that mode of thinking, I, I don't want to um, say it's been sort of decided against or solved in some negative way entirely, but it's really hard to go ahead and make claims about broad human universal human re- resonance of the kind of thing that used to drive the, the, the study of this stuff hundred years ago. We don't talk about that so much anymore because it's just led to so many dead ends and so many mistakes. Um, but instead, we've got a group of people that uh, inherit some stuff from some tradition that they decide is their ancestry, um, just so the Romans, or Romans decided it would be the Trojans. Um, so also different folks have decided that the Greeks are their own ancestors, which is kind of absurd, honestly. Um, in what sense do they mean the ancestor and how do they? But it, 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 let's just say it's culturally constructed. And that doesn't mean it's meaningless and very meaningful, uh, but it's a choice. Uh, you know, people will decide what ancestry they have for their own cultures. And those decisions and conversations happen in the give and take of current contemporary politics, always. Uh, so the construction of antiquity is reliant on um some broader understandings of the contemporary world and it's also susceptible to uh the themes in it, ancient themes are susceptible to being overrun by the contemporary ones um so all of those things i think need to be part of a conversation that talks about inheritance and how it happens and why we do what we do uh with this ancient stuff um so uh, and I think most of what I've said so far, although I'll, I'll defer to my colleagues who study um, uh, materials from Southeast Asia or from East Asia or from the ancient Near East, uh, beyond Gilgamesh that I've referenced, and I feel a little comfortable talking about Gilgamesh because I've worked on Gilgamesh, but um, uh, for my, my colleagues that have expertise in these other areas of deep antiquity, Egyptian material, um, it could be that the materials that they're talking about when they look at the Mahabharata or the Ramayana uh, or the ancient Egyptian uh, temple inscriptions, um, they would say that, yeah, a, a similar kind of process, I would say, is happening with this tradition um, in, into the contemporary world, um, and, but they might not. And I'd be curious to hear uh, what further descriptions would happen in other areas too. I feel pretty confident in talking about the Greek and Roman material and the legacy into the European material and the legacy into those who claimed uh, Europe as sort of some centerpiece of what their contemporary culture is. Um, so, you know, and again, these things are not given. It used to be thought that they were given based on geography and race, which is a sad part of the discussion of mythology, race, questions of race course in and out of the conversation about mythology in the contemporary European context, um, usually to nefarious ends. Um, but uh, it, it uh, each of these is uh, uh, has to be part of the story that's told about the inheritance and rebranding of these ancient materials in the context in which they are. And for the Greek and Roman materials, surely, uh, they're embedded in these broader discourses about contemporary identities um, in whatever time the material is being retold.
0: Yeah, no, I was just quite surprised that they were so insistent um, because this is, you know, Slavic people live here and Slavic people have come around the sixth century uh, to these uh, to these areas and people in Baroque knew that obviously because of the language and all that stuff. Uh, but still, they were like, "No, nah, we're gonna go with Jason here."
1: <laughs> so <laughs> that's wonderful. You know, it's, it, I well, I I laugh I laugh, but with some caution because, of course, myth is an area in which ideologies that are sometimes uh, horribly uh, unjust uh, are built up, repeated, and become authoritative. So. I Yes, that does happen. I'm not saying this is happening in the context that you're talking about. uh people all the time make up benign- tradi- they also make up benign traditions uh that don't deal with systematic human injustice that are just sort of oh, isn't that charming? you know, yeah, it's you, cute, you think that that's yeah <laughs> um so but again my 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 laughing at the charm of it always I think needs to be a little bit tempered by being cautious about what people then start to talk about i i uh, well I'm I appreciate your gentle approach, yeah. <laughs> I'm engaged in contemporary discussions, and, and in the U.S., this kind of conversation is, boy, heated, yeah. um, in which uh, who we are as a group is being, uh, is being uh, debated, and sometimes on terms that I think are leading to dead ends, um, yeah. and particularly leading to, to, to outcomes that don't. But all this, I think, is uh, a piece of what, the, what myth is. It's not clean of that stuff, um, and I think those that want to say that it is I get nervous about where they might go next uh, because for them it just means that okay, X and Y and Z are the dominant ways that we ought to be thinking, um, and then there's gender roles involved, and then there's proper social uh, uh places that a person has and what they ought to, ought to be doing. Uh, you know, it's it tricky, it's it
0: tricky. All of Hollywood's contemporary incarnations, not all, but let's say most incarnations of Greek myths, seem Average at best, but mostly quite, (laughs) what's the word I'm looking for? Disappointing, to be honest. I mean, some bits of dialogue from these movies have become actual memes. Like, this is Sparta from 300 and release the Kraken (laughs) from Clash of the Titans. (laughs) I think Liam Neeson says that. Uh, I think he's Zeus or is he Poseidon? I don't know. Um, Even Troy, which I loved as a a kid, seems kind of lackluster. I've watched it. Uh, two weeks ago, they make Patroclus and Achilles cousins, not lovers, which I mean, I love my cousins, but dramatically it doesn't really justify Achilles's rage in the film. So it, it all ends up being quite lifeless somehow. So right. why do you think Hollywood has problems with retelling these stories for the big screen?
1: Well, yeah, that's a, it's all, it's a great question. Um, it seems to me, and it, it's, True is particularly, I mean, each time I go through, particularly the Odyssey, that it's it is welcoming a kind of cinematic treatment that would just retell Homer in that in that way. And like, why not tell this great story in that um the Iliad as well? You've got this wonderful material, you the know, Trojan War, and you have Achilles, a very compelling figure. Um, but uh Hollywood knows that the culture with which it's dealing, and Hollywood knows the culture with which it's dealing very well they've been making up stories for uh, an evolving audience uh, for centuries. And there is, in any area of great economic um, consequence in a society, there's a lot of folks directing talent to figuring out exactly what the audience wants to see. Um, So I trust that they know their audience. And when they're telling these stories, they think that that's going to work better for the audience than something else. And when you look at the Troy version, for example, um, the Troy movie, Wolfgang Peterson, 2004, I believe, maybe 2000. Uh, Anyway, the Wolfgang Peterson, Troy, you've got this um, uh, Achilles that shows up, and in some ways he maps onto the old Brad Pitt, and in some ways he maps onto the old one. uh, He's easy on the eyes. He's extremely fit. Uh, He moves like Barishnikov. All of that is kind of mappable onto ancient Achilles. Um, But he's also in the in the movie. He's dissolute. Um, He drinks too much. He sleeps with women all over the place. Um, He's irreligious. He doesn't believe in the gods, and he thinks the gods are a kind of superstitious vestige of some old order that they're growing out of now because of some enlightenment thing that's happening. Um, None of these map onto the ancient uh, Achilles at all. Um, And then the driving thing that really pushes the movie and pushes uh, Achilles to do what he does um, is heterosexual, romantic, pair-bonding love. With Um, Crusades. yeah. Briseis in the in the Troy movie is the kind of key fulcrum that moves things forward, and there's a lot of reasons that Hollywood wants to tell that version. You can have a strong female character now, and the Briseis in the Troy movie, at least they make their attempts, to make her to have her own agency and her own voice, and all that. Great, like I'm not against that. That's that's, that's great. Um, but what we wind up with is a, is a, a war story in which love conquers all. Uh, love in this sense of heterosexual pair bond romantic love because achilles does everything he does for love it also casts a, a, a new a way of thinking about the helen version of the story um, in the iliad uh helen and uh paris uh their love affair is just annoying and everyone's annoyed by it why in the world did their mistakes lead us to this war um that is uh, annoying to every single person in the epic um In the modern one, uh, they're given a pass. And they're given a pass because, as Priam says, Peter O'Toole in the movie, um, I sense a change in him because he's now truly in love. So as long as Paris and Helen are truly in love, then wars, whatever happens, has to happen after that. But the most important thing is that they're truly in love. Um, So their heterosexual, romantic, pair-bonded love um, is uh, the explanation and a reasonable enough explanation for all this uh, faulty role. Um, And then you've got uh, uh, Achilles doing his thing too. So Hollywood tells a story in which, guess what, Um, love conquers all. And it's not just sort of liking someone else and all the good stuff in the world. You know, love is a broad term. It's particularly heterosexual pair-bonded romantic love that's sex-based, like involves sex. That's the kind of love that conquers everything. And boy, is that a Hollywood theme. And boy, is that an American obsession, Um, you know? So there you go. And we're gonna, well, we we retell the ancient materials that's the kind of stories we're gonna tell. Uh, So, so it goes.
0: Yeah, you're you're kinda right now that I think about it. Like Helen is just like prancing around and everybody's so nice to her and then they look yeah. over the walls and there's like a thousand Greek ships there and they're like, Ah, oh, don't worry about that. You just enjoy your romance <laughs> with with Paris. It's all good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we have to fight. We have to fight. Yeah. And the, the, then the, the contemporary version does put sort of honor stuff in the mix. And they also claim that Achilles is a greedy imperialist. And that's, of course, a bad thing for contemporary Hollywood. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's he, he, a land acquisition thing. So there's this kind of subterranean undercurrent. Now, again, none of that stuff has ancient precedents. Yeah. Uh, Agamemnon is not a land-grabbing imperialist. Uh, he just has to go fight this fight because his brother his wife got messed with and he doesn't want to go do it he has to go do it he has to crush these people and of course there's money at stake I mean, obviously there is this is standard hero stuff You it, it, to, to get your fortune you don't sort of earn it at market uh, to get your mm-hmm. fortune you clobber other people and take their stuff and then you build really high walls with the wealth that that gives you so that other people can't take your stuff um and you know whoever pile is highest is the is the mono a uh, mono is the, is the you know most macho of the men and They work in a world that answers to that stuff mostly. Um, And, you know, some of these pieces obviously could translate into a contemporary audience, but it'd be very hard to translate at all. I think the Eliot is much darker than a story that Hollywood wants to tell.
0: Yeah. Do we have anything resembling mythology of our own these days? Because it doesn't seem like it at first glance. I mean, we have pop culture, but this hardly seems like some sort of larger than life transcendent frame. Of reference. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a great question, and I am struggling with my own answer to this as I, as I move through the, the book I'm working on, uh, on myth. is going to have to come to some reckoning with that. Um, the uh, it, f- problem for me is that myth starts to be looked at as a kind of honorific title that's given to the most important stories. And if you start to say things like, you know, what comes out of Hollywood can't be myth, people start to think, oh, so you're claiming that it's not important. Um, and to be uh, critical of contemporary pop culture uh, in my world is an occupational hazard. Um, at least in America, people will instantly label you as an elitist, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, I mean, you know, I imagine you know how that how it goes from there. So uh, we um, are, I'm cautious to get, to stay away from that kind of debate because I don't really think that what I'm talking about is um, some story that I decide on my own recognizance to place a label on um, that, you know, earns its place in the, the category of myth that we're defining here. And um, let me just one other little piece to this story, and then we can get to the next stage, however you want to uh, get into it. But the, um, the idea that myth exists in some sort of abstract periodic table of cultural expression And that it's just out there as a phenomenon in the world as like a reality you know like uh uh, like nickel or silver or uh plutonium or you know it's just out there as a a reality that's not true in fact it's a human cultural creation um and the stuff that we applied that label myth to uh is human cultural creations that didn't call themselves they didn't wake up one day and say hey look we're myths um it's just this is a container that Again, it existed in antiquity. It was reinvented for the modern world in the middle seventeen, late 1700s uh, by a figure called Heine. Um, and it gets um, uh, defined and populated according to the use value of the definition that we bring out for it. So with that as preamble, I would say when I'm going to treat myth in the, in the book that's coming up, I'm going to look at uh, these deep uh, narratives from deep antiquity. Um, that are focused on issues of central concern for the culture um, that for me is the sort of best way of thinking about it um, and yeah there will be further manifestations that are definitely mythic in other words they work in that same territory and i would call the troy movie mythic in that sense it's working with myth but i wouldn't call it myth and the problem is it doesn't grow to have social authority mm-hmm. um, it needs to have social authority for it to, to take the place of myth so yeah i think that we probably do um want to talk about methods an ongoing dynamic category that's currently being invented and reinvented and not just along the lines of the ancient material but even maybe along contemporary lines as well um, but we'd have to find something that has deep and broad cultural authority i'm also going to uh, push a certain line of kind of questions that myth answers um, and these are questions of fundamental human experiences um, fundamental human experience so where do we come from? Why are we here? Why is the universe here? Why do we have to die? Uh, what's the point of being alive? Um, these are the questions these ancient narratives go at, um, and I won't see all the cultures that we look at, but in many of the cultures that we have evidence for, these are the central questions. Um, and we sometimes will say, "Oh, those ancients—they just told these fanciful stories because they didn't have science." Well, guess what? Our science—and I am a like an armchair science buffs, like I, i'm thrilled by what my colleagues are finding out in cognitive science and the dna material the blood analysis um what's happening in broader um, physics cosmology i you know I, i'm a tourist in this world so i'm not claiming expertise but i'm wowed by what we do find out but i for myself have not seen answers to the questions that are getting clearer even incrementally uh, about where do we come from, why are we here, what's the point of the universe, why is the universe here, why do we have to die? Um, Those are questions that are still just as vibrant and sometimes very urgent in our contemporary world. Um, And I think actually uh, we're probably not, it's surely the case that we're no better off in our understanding of those fundamental questions, do we have souls, is there a god? I come on, we're no better off in our understanding of those questions, even despite our trillions of terabytes of, of stuff we've generated of new knowledge. We're no closer to answering those questions. And in some ways, I think we're actually a little farther away. And our problem, I think now, is that we undervalue our ignorance. Mm-hmm. And when we undervalue our ignorance, we think, oh, we've got the answers to these questions or they're just around the corner. I don't know how often I've heard coming out of Silicon Valley that the singularity is just around the corner. Um, I've been hearing that for 20 years. And that means, of course, that machines are going to become conscious and that we've invented consciousness. I even saw a headline that Google has invented consciousness. Okay, (laughs) Um, I'm not going to hold my breath. I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, The claim there, obviously, is that then we would have some mastery over what consciousness is uh, because we can produce it and manipulate it and engineer it. And should that happen, that would be pretty amazing. And, yeah, that would get some way to the question of what consciousness is all about, Um, some way to answering that question. But again, I don't know that it would answer the others. And I also don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> um, again, I, not based on expertise. And I will have those that know some of these worlds very well that will claim that, no, we really are just around the corner this time. Uh, but I get a little skeptical of folks that have been telling you that in different versions uh, for 20 years. Um, it's just about to happen. Hold, hold your horses. Here we go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Wow. This hour flew by. Uh, really fast. Um, the name of this podcast is Eurotrash, which means I have to ask you something a bit more trashy at the end. Okay. Many famous mythological names were mentioned during this conversation, and yet we failed to give our proper respect to one of the most famous ones. And that is, of course, Zena, the warrior princess. Um, <laughs> how high does she rank amongst your list of the most badass Greek heroes?
1: Oh very high. Venus yes. is magnificent. Um Absolutely. and much more interesting than than her sidekick Hercules. <laughs> um, I, I, I like her because there's a purity to her. I mean, there's, there are classical antecedents that we talk about her Amazonian, I think probably legacy. I'm sorry, I lost on the detail a little bit. Um, but she gets to be a kind of pure contemporary concoction that doesn't have to answer to ancient traditions or worry about having to remake them. She can just be made up out of whole cloth, and she goes around just clobbering people. It's marvelous to watch that happen. Um, plus, is a thrill. I mean... Uh this is probably getting further into the weeds, but you've invited me on the trash plank, so I'll just walk down it a little bit here. Please. Don't. Um the uh yeah, the the sort of uh remember that the folks that uh, make up uh in, in the sort of comic book uh zone of, of american pop culture um and uh matching on to the sort of myth geek zone of people and probably dungeons and dragons that old fantasy video game that turned into video stuff that's probably the pool of male imaginations we're dealing with and you know i i, I am a geek with all of the rest of them and i, I include myself proudly in that company um in which male geeks uh, uh their success with uh females um is more the, the zone of fantasy than reality <laughs> um so when these folks make up a, a, a fantasy woman um a figure a female gendered figure uh they're going to make up one that is Delightful uh, to a kind of lowest common denominator of maleness. Um, I'll let women when they make up the Xena, and you know, maybe it's you know, a gal she go in her version of this gus in recent uh, um, uh, Amazon and Amazonian uh, accounts and things like that. Maybe that's kind of where we're gonna go, but that the Zena thing is very much a male fantasy. Um, and Lucy Wallace just portrays her flawlessly. She's magnificent. Absolutely. Um yes. yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna see this sort of no female gender uh thread in there that's being baked in that's real and authentic and serious. Um so that's also interesting. Um but yeah, she's she's magnificent. Um so who would not love Zina?
0: <laughs> I And she's
1: much more interesting, much I more mean, interesting than Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Sorbo as Heracles. Oh God, that got so bad. No,
0: no, absolutely not. Um, I yeah. mean, to be to be fair, I watched both, but Zeno was clearly my my favorite. Also, she ah, had amazing time travel abilities. Like one episode was set in the times of the Romans, and then the next episode was set in in just like uh, ancient. Uh, like the Hebrew Bible, like the Old Testament, oh. and then she would encounter David, King David and stuff, and they they had oh, no that's... regard for like thousands of years they passed, like it was very free-flowing it was quite awesome, Sure, I agree well the
1: path is one big mush when you're yeah, doing exactly. Zena, and you can draw from whatever you want, because it's all back there yeah, we but the, all the figure of that. Jock, isn't the figure of Jockster in the Zena stuff? yep, I think the figure of Jockster is and Jockster is actually played by a guy um, called Ted Rainey um who's uh uh sam, sam Rainey's Rainey's brother.
0: brother yeah yeah
1: sam Raimi's brother yeah. yeah and uh ted went to the high school across town from me and i knew him through college he's oh, wow. hilarious and interesting guy um awesome. so i'm always a fan of jockster and yeah. and that <laughs> whole package yeah oh, evil dead is another place you've got to if you want to dig into these folks go back and look at the movie evil dead the first okay. one uh, which is a sam Raimi picture
0: Um, Professor Strzok, where can people find your work besides the Coursera uh, um, online course that we mentioned at the beginning? Uh, How can people purchase your books?
1: Yeah, well, everything's on Amazon, um, and uh, the ones that are single-authored by me are, are Princeton. Um, so the, the the next the myth book probably a couple of years before it's done, um, but that'll be coming out from Princeton, and I I do hope that it uh, is accessible for a broad audience and not just a, a narrow work of scholarship like the others have been. Um, plus, also I've got a uh, I'm general editor of a series called uh, the Cultural History of Ideas, which is a six-volume. Uh, set from the antiquity of the contemporary world. And that's a uh, most recent scholarly production. Uh, that's going to come out, we think, in December now. Uh, i was supposed to be October, but it keeps getting pushed back a little. But that'll be Bloomsbury Academic, a of, of UK press.
0: This was such a delight of a conversation. Thank you so much for taking well, the time. Well,
1: for me, too. Thank you. I really enjoyed
0: it. Thank you.